encourage you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles, if you're not there yet, in John chapter 14. We'll look at these verses in a few moments once again. Uh, it is a holiday weekend, Memorial Day weekend. We're thankful for everyone that's come our way this Lord's Day morning. Uh, we know we have several that are away on vacation and traveling. Our young folks are away on a uh, mission trip, and so uh, we want to keep them in our prayers as well. But we are thankful for everyone that's gathered together with us this Lord's Day morning to be able to worship our Heavenly Father in spirit and in truth. Uh, we're always encouraged by these songs that uh, Brother Billy has picked out for us to lead us in our singing. And also the scripture reading that we had uh, just a few moments ago, John chapter 14, those verses never grow old. And I was just thinking a few moments ago of the uh, number of members that we've had who's had loved ones that have passed away. Uh, those verses, you know, they're renewed daily. But even during the, this recent time when loved ones have passed away, uh, because they know that they're in a better place. And these verses are an encouragement to us for what the Lord had said to his apostles, that he'll come back again and receive those who believe in him unto himself, and they'll be able to spend their eternity with him. And so if you have your Bibles, notice once again John chapter 14. The context of this passage, Jesus had just ate the Passover meal. He just instituted the Lord's Supper. He had pointed out that he was going to be betrayed by one of them. He pointed out to Peter that even that very night he was going to deny him. But also while talking about those things, he had just recently told them that he was going to be captured by his enemies. He was going to be beaten. He was going to be scourged. And he was going to be crucified. He's going to die very shortly. And so while these apostles are thinking about someone betraying him, someone denying him, the enemy coming to capture him, uh, their hearts were filled with trouble. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And notice this, that where I am, there you may be also. And whether I go, you know, and the way, you know. Keep in mind, he did talk about being captured and scourged and killed. And they knew he was going to die, but Jesus is talking about going to that beautiful place called heaven. And he's talking about what's in heaven that he went to prepare and what's in heaven that he's going to come and gather them up once again and take them to those beautiful mansions on high. We'll speak a little bit about those in just a few moments as well. But he says, where I go, you know, and the way you know. But Thomas is saying, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and we don't even know the way, paraphrasing that verse. But then Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so this morning, even though many of us are very familiar with these verses, I wanted to point out two things from these verses that Jesus Christ talked about. And there has been sermons preached on this same topic, books written by this same title, Believing in the God Who Believes in You. And notice what Jesus said. He says, you believe in God. He wants them to understand the faith that they have already. That they're facing God, but he also says, you believe in God, but believe also in me. But I want to pick up on the point that Jesus says, you believe in God. Now, how many of us have from time to time stopped and thought about just who God is and what is it that makes up this Heavenly Father that we serve? And, and sometimes when difficulties come and the evil days draw nigh and challenges, they're in our life, the storms of life come our way, and, and we begin to ask questions about God. Some folks may ask God, where are you in the midst of my troubles? 
in this storm that's in my life right now. Where are you? What are you doing? And, and so you would have folks that, that would pray to God, would talk to God, and some would even question God, and some would even reach the point where they doubt God. But Jesus told his apostles, you believe in God. So let's notice some reasons for their belief. Now to the Jews' religion, you're just born into that Jewish family. And on the eighth day, they would be circumcised. When they get a little bit older, they would be taught. And so they would grow up being a Jew. The males would grow up and understand the, the customs that were required of <clears throat> male Jews and the females the same way. Because back in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses, uh, who knew he wouldn't be able to enter into the promised land with the children of Israel, Moses told the people to remember their God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He's one God. But then he went on to point out to the parents that they need to teach their children the scriptures. You know, throughout the day, uh, throughout their, their occasions where they're walking around this beautiful earth that God had created. Moses wanted God's word ever before these children and also ever before the parents. And so when Jesus talked to these apostles, you believe in God, uh, we want to look at what it was that brought about their faith in God. Well, they were born into Jewish religion. They would be taught these scriptures, and some would indeed take these scriptures to heart, especially when it talked about the God of heaven who created all things, that there is a creator and there is a sustainer. And, of course, he has a purpose for the human being that he had created. And so these apostles living under the old law would learn these scriptures, but they would also learn what would be written in the Psalms. And many of these Psalms, beautiful Psalms that talk about God, Yes, he's our rock, and yes, he's our refuge, and, and yes, he's holy, and yes, he's good, and, and, and yes, he's true, and he's just, and, and uh, the characteristics just go on and on. <clears throat> and so they would hear these things, and many would believe on these things, <clears throat> and pardon me, and would follow uh, this great God of heaven. And so when Jesus came upon the scene, he called many disciples, but out of all of those disciples that he called, he chose 12 of them to be his apostles. And he knew who these 12 men were, what they were going to be like. Uh, but aren't you thankful that this God in heaven believed in them and that he in turn wanted them <clears throat> to continue believing in him? Uh, just think for a few moments. You know, when you have people that want to con convert folks, uh, would you go out and convert somebody that you think might be a thief or an extortioner? Well, Jesus chose Judas. He loved money. He had a problem with money. Would you think about someone that perhaps had their own opinion on what other towns were like and other cities were like and other cultures were like? Well, in John chapter 1, you had Nathaniel who heard that we found Jesus. And <clears throat> Nathaniel said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You know, Lord heard those words. He came out of Nazareth. But you see, you know, he didn't get into a, an argument with Nathaniel or a shouting match or you don't know what you're talking about. Nazareth had his reputation. Jesus was raised there, not born there, but he was raised there. And, and he looked at Nathanael and he said, Behold, a man with whom has no guile. Jesus pointed out something good about Nathanael. And as Nathanael spent three years with Jesus Christ, he saw that, yes, something good can, can come out of Nazareth. And so Jesus saw something in Judas that he wanted to help change, but unfortunately Judas carried out his faith and taken his own life. But he saw something good in Nathaniel. 
that Nathaniel needs to understand that yes, there are different people in different towns, but everyone has a soul. So Jesus taught him to be a fisher of men. You might think about uh, the tax collector Matthew. You know, around tax time when taxes are due, I don't know too many folks that are ready to go out and try to convert some folks that work for the IRS or maybe for the government, especially if they, if they have to pay in thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars. Uh, they're not on their, at the top of their priority list when trying to reach these lost souls. But, but as we know, I, I just say that facetiously, everybody has a soul, and some souls, as we know, are lost, and we want to try to reach everyone. But you see, Jesus saw something in Matthew that God saw in Matthew, and, and Jesus wanted to use Matthew to become a fisher of men as well. And then Peter and Andrew and James and John and choosing these apostles, uh, these men to be apostles. And yes, uh, they were Jews brought up under the old law and they knew about the God of heaven and they knew about the scriptures. But Jesus wanted to use these men in his services all as well because he saw something in them, especially the leadership abilities with James and Peter and John. They would have a purpose in, in God's kingdom. But it's interesting when even Jesus called Peter and he, he went with Peter in his boat, and he told Peter to cast down into the deep and drew in a lot of fishes, and Peter told Jesus, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. I know Peter's thankful, and we're thankful that the Lord didn't say, You know what? You know, I don't want to be around you. You are a sinful man. Well, all folks have sin, but here Peter, not realizing just who Jesus is, he said, you know, I'm not even worthy to be around this individual. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. But Jesus saw something in Peter that he wanted to use in carrying out God's will. And so when Jesus looks at these apostles, and Jesus tells these apostles, you believe in God. Now keep in mind, we want to make it personal. We want to believe in the God who believes in us. Because just like Nathaniel and Matthew and Peter, James and John and Andrew and Nathaniel and, and Judas and, and all of the 12 apostles, Jesus saw something in them, the fact that they did believe in God, but Jesus saw something in them that he wanted to help mold as he prepared them to become fishers of men. Now, when we look at reasons for their faith, it's because, yes, they were born in a Jewish family, but also their faith was best based upon the scriptures that they read and applied to their hearts and also based upon the evidence that they could see. The scriptures substantiate the evidence because when it comes to people who believe in God, they agree to the fact that he is the creator of all things. In a few moments, we'll talk about unbelievers and what makes up these so-called unbelievers. What kind of characteristics do they have? But you see, these apostles could look at the sun, moon, and the stars and see that, yes, there's a creator behind all of that. And the Old Testament scriptures would verify that it's the God of heaven. In Psalm 19, verse 1 and following, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night showeth knowledge. And so when they would hear these scriptures, and they would look up in the universe at, at night, and they would see this beautiful universe, uh, these scriptures substantiate the fact that God created all of this. And so when you look at what these apostles were going through at this time, yes, their heart was troubled, but Jesus says, you believe in God and we can see reasons for their belief but this morning do you believe in God do you believe in him being the creator of all things you know we hear from statistics from time to time 30 percent of the Americans believe in God or sometimes 60 or 70 percent of the Americans believe in God well that question is a little vague because we have Muslims who believe in God but their God Allah is different from the God of the scriptures 
Uh, you have other nationalities that are in our nation. Yes, they believe in God, but if they're not asked to describe what kind of God this is, there are those in, in other nations, Grecian nations, they have millions of gods. And so you might be, well, which God are you talking about? But if you asked a vague question, do you believe in God, you're going to get a percentage of folks that say yes. If we took a poll this morning, we know the majority would say, yes, I believe in God. And so we might ask ourselves, why do we believe in, in this God? Why do we believe, we believe in God as being the creator and the sustainer of all things? Well, if our faith is based upon the scriptures, these scriptures lead us to the God of these scriptures. And so, yes, we can say we believe in God because the evidence verifies it. What we see around us in creation, contrary to what uh, are be, is being taught in school, and I teach science, and I know what the science textbooks teach, and so I know how they try to prove a theory that man just evolved, and, and they try to point out the origin of the species, and, and so mankind is left with a choice. Do I want to believe that I come from a monkey, or do I want to believe that I come from a creator in the scriptures that's called God and even God the Father? And so folks are faced with a choice. And we know the reason why some folks want to choose evolution, because evolution says there's no God. Evolution says there's no spiritual power to be accountable to and responsible to. Evolution says, you know, man is his own judge. And man can make up his own system of morality and what's right and wrong, <clears throat> what's truth and what's error. And so when you look at these apostles and we look at reasons for their belief, it's yes, because they're born into the family, the Jewish family, and yes, their faith is based upon the scriptures and the evidence. But notice something else. What are some reasons for unbelief for those on the other side? Reasons for unbelief that, that there is no God. You have your Bibles turned back to the Old Testament in, in Psalm 14. And notice what the psalmist would say in these first four verses. <clears throat> Psalm 14 and verse 1. He says... The fool had said, in his heart, there is no God. If we looked at foolishness, or even the word fool, it means someone who is senseless, or someone who is weak-minded, or someone who foolishly takes risks. Uh, that is, here's someone, they may even be aware of what's right and wrong, what's truth and error. But you see, what makes it foolish is that they, they know truth and, and they know the consequences, but they choose something else. They're willing to take risks. Maybe God isn't all who he says he is. Maybe there's no God at all. Because the writer of Psalm 14 goes on to describe what these fools are like. Notice, if you would, in the next verses. He says, A fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looketh down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek him. They were all gone aside. They were all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of the iniquity no knowledge? God asks a question. Yeah, they have knowledge, but they foolishly turn away from it. They foolishly want to take risks. Uh, they foolishly want to become corrupt and filthy and abominable by the lifestyle that they want to live. You see, if there is a God, then he has something that he requires of mankind. But the fool says there is no God, and therefore they don't want to follow what he has to say. And so the reasons for the unbelief on the part of others 
we can see very clearly that it's foolishness. Uh, there are those that foolishly reject God as being the creator. You know, you can ask them, this pulpit that I stand behind, did a tornado just come through Isle of Branch and tear down some trees, and the next thing you know, you have a pulpit, along with pews and a beautiful building. We know it didn't happen. There was a designer behind this pulpit, a designer behind the pews, a designer behind the beautiful building that we're worshiping in, but I don't have to see the designer who designed this or the pews or the building. I see the evidence of it. And so I know someone exists to be able to design these things. But even if you're in school and you study science and biology and the cells that make up all living things and, and you see design in all of this, and I was even reading about DNA and the code that, that's in the bodies of human beings. It instructs the cells on what to do and how much to grow and, and what to produce. And, and, and I'm thinking, well, who instructed the DNA and who instructed the code to do such a thing? Because it still implies a designer. But those you have that would act foolishly says there is no God. And then you ask a question, really? But you see, they know their answer. They want to say there's no God so that they can live the way that, that the... Uh, writer of Psalm 14 described here. But then notice also, another reason would be wickedness. You know, now we're getting to the crux of the matter. Why some folks don't want to believe that there's a God in heaven. And so when you look at wickedness, yes, it's simply evil and immoral conduct. In your Bibles in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, John had pointed out that the whole world lieth in wickedness. And some folks might say, no, that, that's not true. Well, they may not live around the Mid-South area or Memphis or Detroit or, or New York or some of these other areas. Uh, this world does lie in wickedness. It was true during John's time. It's true during our time. You know, if we can even put Noah be, before us, Noah, can the whole world lie in wickedness? And Noah would say yes. Yeah, 120 years he tried to preach to the folks around him that there's going to come a flood that's going to destroy the world. And, and they laughed at him even while he, builded, he built the ark. And then Noah went on the ark, and his wife and his three sons and their three wives went on to the ark. The rain poured, floods came, all of humanity perished. But yes, the whole world can lie in wickedness. And they choose this lifestyle because they don't want to be responsible and accountable to God. They want to marry who they want, be with who they want, live the way they want, talk the way they want, dress the way they want, act the way they want, and they don't want a higher power telling them what to do. And so you think back at Adam and Eve. They were given commandments in the garden. And of course they sinned and were kicked out of the garden. They had children, Cain and Abel. If you're still in 1 John 5, turn back to 1 John 3. Notice what John says in verse 10. John says, <clears throat> In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. And John says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Why do they hate Christians? Because they glorify God. They serve God. They want to carry out the will of God and the purpose of God in their life. And when you do that, you're going to have haters. And we have folks that even, that even hate the church and what the church stands for. And, and why do they hate the church? They're not going to use that term because they know you can atti attach hate to crime and then you have a hate crime. 
but but I know you can have you know the church throughout this nation it probably wouldn't be able to stand up for what's right in the court and saying these folks hate us well the court system frowns upon Christianity as well because they believe in one Lord and one God and, and one purpose that God wants them to carry out and so you have these folks that are against the church well what is it that they hate about the church or dislike is a term they'd probably use they would dislike the church because it tells them how they're supposed to act what role they have as a male or as a female how they're supposed to talk how they're supposed to dress yes we have in the scriptures God's will for us to conduct ourselves as children of God and that's what we promote but then you have folks that don't want to follow that lifestyle and, and so they disagree with what the church would teach but when you look at what John says this world lies in wickedness but he tells us why it lies in wickedness going back to chapter 3 because they want to follow the wicked one you know it was interesting for Cain that he didn't want to kill an animal but he'd rather kill his brother to get his brother out of his sight his brother offered up sacrifices that were pleasing to God according to Hebrews chapter 11 but Cain didn't want to believe in this God and follow this God and do what God had required and so at least he started by killing his brother and getting his brother out of the way and then God pronounced his judgment upon Cain in Genesis chapter 4 and Cain is saying oh this is too grievous for me well how do you think your brother felt when you killed him but then here's Cain thinking oh I can't live this way well you took your brother's life and wouldn't allow him to live and, and John tells us why Cain did that his own works were evil he chose not to follow the will of God, but his own, or more specifically, the works of the devil. But then also we can notice, not just foolishness and wickedness, but I touched on this word here, hatefulness. That's to dislike intensely or passionately, to feel uh, aversion or extreme hostility, or aversion, pardon me, or extreme hostility towards someone else. Time to time we'll hear about people who, lo who lose loved ones. And they may tell you, I hate God right now. I don't like God right now. I don't love God right now. And they misunderstand their relationship with this Heavenly Father when death comes upon them. And, and that's why the scriptures are so comforting when we read about death that comes upon individuals. Uh, when it comes to Job, in Job chapters 1 and 2, who had lost everything, but he didn't charge God foolishly. He didn't sin in every, anything that he said. Blessed be the name of the Lord, he gives and he takes away. He didn't say that with an arrogant heart. His heart was still filled with grief. He had lost all his children as well. But then he knows here's the God of, of, of creation, the God of all, the God who gives, the God who blesses, and the God who takes away. He didn't understand all of it, but he didn't turn his back on God. And so you look at instances like that where here is Job who didn't say, you know, I hate God right now. I dislike God right now. I don't love God right now. Job didn't charge God foolishly, nor did any sinful thing come out of his mouth. But he, again, as I point out, was filled with grief. Any parent who loses one child, you know, not mentioning all of their children, are going to fill with grief and, and shock at the moment. But to turn against God is not the right answer. You know, Romans chapter 1 and verse 30, Paul tells us that there are people who hate God. He doesn't necessarily tell us why they hate God, but, but we can come up with some ideas why they hate God. God took something from me, and, and therefore I don't like God. 
It may be God took my spouse from me. God took my parent from me. God took my child from me. God took my best friend from me. Or God took my job away. God took my finances away. God did something, and they're blaming God, and, and therefore they turn against God. They become haters of God. And if you had time to, rent, uh, to read Romans chapter 1, God is in heaven, verse 18 and following. These folks know God, but they turn away from God. They began to worship something else. They began to come up with their own system of morality and their own system uh, of life that they want to follow. And many ungodly and abominable uh, and sinful and wicked things are mentioned in Romans chapter 1. But one of those is haters of God. They hate God because of what he expects of humanity and that he doesn't act the way that they think that he ought to act. And so they turn against him. And so we look at this passage that Jesus Christ talked about. You have those individuals that Jesus described here as being believers in God. You believe in God. And then secondly, Jesus points out about the God that believes in us. In my Father's house are many mansions. What he's talking about is God believes in you and he's prepared a place for you in heaven. Now sometimes folks don't make that connection. Here's a God who believes in you. Not only does he believe in you, but there's a place in heaven for you. And that's what Jesus told these apostles. Now, these apostles don't know what's going, on, going to go on in the future other than Jesus is going to get captured, he's going to get beaten, he's going to get scourged, and he wants to use them in his service. And, and they don't know what the future holds, but Jesus goes all the way to the end. God believes in you, and he's prepared a place in heaven for you. And when we look at that beautiful place called heaven, in the, in the uh, book of Revelation, it's described as a city four square. This, this golden mansion that you can read of in the book of Revelation. With this crystal sea and this street of gold. And, and then we, we can talk about the things that are going to be there. But then what's much more important unto us is the people that's going to be there. Now Paul described them as being immortal and incorruptible. The folks that are going to make up heaven are going to be these believers, both Old Testament and New, who have put their trust in God Almighty, and then in the New Testament, of course, put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so those that I talked about a few moments ago, John chapter 14, meaning so much to them about loved ones who have died and gone on, that there is a place in heaven that's going to be for them. They're going to be waiting for their family members. They're going to be waiting for the other believers and the other righteous to take their place with him. So Jesus also went on to say, I will come again and receive you unto myself. This, Jesus points out, needs to be a life that has purpose. He's going to come back for individuals, and these individuals that he comes back for are the ones that are going to have their place in heaven. It doesn't mean that they can just sit back and do nothing and just say, Lord, Lord. There is a will and there is a purpose that God wants us to carry out in our life. And so that life must be filled with faith. Paul pointed out, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believe it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Who's going to go to that beautiful place called heaven? Who is Jesus going to come back for? Those who live by faith. Not just a life that has uh, faith as its justification, but also a life saturated with trust and obedience. The Old Testament, some of these characters that we can read of, 
whether it be David or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob uh, or some of, of the prophets that we can read of in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, you see what describes their life is trust. They trusted in God no matter what. And so the proverb writer would say, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on thy understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. And so we see this life that's filled with trust. But also we see a life that's faithful unto the end. Now there's something in Saul of Tarsus that God saw. If we were Christians living at that time, and this man came into our city or our town, wanted to find out who were followers of Jesus Christ, and then when they, they were found out, they would be captured and put on trial and, and, and stoned. They would be killed. If we heard about this man Saul of Tarsus coming into our town, if we lived back then, uh, we'd want to make sure that you know, we were hidden or make sure that he didn't find us. But Saul of Tarsus did find some individuals. They were put on trial. They were killed. Acts 26, verses 9 through 11 verifies that. But there was something in Saul of Tarsus that he saw that many other people didn't see, and that is a man who's willing to give his life to Jesus Christ our Lord. He wasn't willing to do it at the time because he thought Jesus was a blasphemer. Now Paul's own words, he said, I'm a blasphemer, I'm a persecutor, and also he's one who took the lives of other individuals. We would call that a murderer. And so Paul admitted to his sins, but God showed mercy on him. God believed in him. And how many thousands of folks can owe Paul for having that gospel being brought to him? But Paul would always bring glory to God for the work that he did and point them to God that, that he's the one that needs to be glorified and he's the one that needs to be honored. But Paul, pardon me, God saw something in Paul. God sees something in you this morning. There is a God in heaven. Do you believe in him? This God believes in you. So no matter what's going on in your life, he wants to help you through that life. He wants you to help glorify him no matter what comes. And so when difficulties come, heartaches come, and storms come, he needs a faithful child of God to rely upon him throughout that process. Because there's some folks in our world that don't have an answer to life's problems. And they need these answers, and they can see these answers in the lives of children of God who maintain their faith and their obedience in God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, we want to encourage you to do that. Notice Jesus was willing to come to this world, to live among men, to glorify his heavenly Father, do all those things that please him. He was willing to do that uh, and then come back once again to receive those believers unto himself and spend their eternity in heaven with him. So if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, do that this morning. Put your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. Be willing to open up your mouth and confess him as being the Son of God. Be willing to repent of your sins, as Peter had commanded in Acts 2 and verse 38. And then follow that up with baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. If you do that, Acts 2, 47, the Lord will add you to his family. And he'll come back for his family one day. But maybe you're a child of God and you've fallen short. You, you weren't able to handle the storms of this life. And you realize that and, and you want to come back home. You know, God's always there with open arms. He's always willing for the prodigals to come back home. But if you're here as a child of God and sin's there, we want to pray with you and for you to reestablish that relationship with God. So if we can help you, won't you come while we sing?